the prophets testify. The righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believed. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3, 21 through 24. In Spurgeon's morning and evening, i got all my little... Got them all laid out so I won't mess up, which I probably will too. Anyway, a voice of one calling in the deserts. This is from Isaiah 40. Prepare the way for the Lord. The voice crying in the wilderness. This is Spurgeon. The voice, voice crying in the wilderness demanded a way for the Lord. A way prepared and a way prepared in the desert. I need to pay attention to the Master's proclamation and open for him a pathway to my heart, which is caught up with indulgent behaviors through the desert of my nature. The four instructions in the text require my serious attention. Number one, every valley must be exalted. Low and groveling thoughts of God must be given up. Doubting and despairing must be removed. And self-seeking and physical desires must be forsaken. Across the deep valleys, a glorious causeway of grace must be raised. Number two, every mountain and hill made low. <clears throat> this is also a, a, uh, a thing of the end times. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all mankind together will see it, for the mouth of the Lord is spoken. I love the eye wills of God in all of Scripture. Every mountain and hill will be laid low. Proud self-sufficiency and boastful self-righteousness must be leveled to make a highway for the king of kings. Divine fellowship is never bestowed on haughty, high-minded sinners. It's despicable in his sight. The Lord respects the lowly and visits the contrite in heart, but the lofty are an abomination to him. My soul, beg the Holy Spirit to set you right in this respect. Lastly, the crooked shall be made straight. The wavering heart must have a straight path of decision for God and holiness marked out of it. Double-minded people are strangers to the God of truth. My soul, take heed to be honest and true in all things, as in the sight of the heart-searching God. His, heart, his eyes roam throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. We don't ever fool God. We may fool every single person in our sphere of influences, but you're not going to fool him. Obstacles of sin must be removed and thorns and briars of rebellion must be uprooted. Such an eminent visitor must not find muddy paths and stony places when he comes to honor his favored ones with his company. Oh, that this evening this Lord, the Lord may be filled, find in my heart a highway prepared by his grace that his progression to the farthest limits of my soul will be triumphant. Okay, amazing grace. That's what we're singing today. And it is amazing. I mean, it is amazing. So we're going to pass those around. I should have done that earlier. Sorry. Because I am not going to sing a solo, no matter how much y'all beg me. <laughs> oh, man. So happy to see you. How you doing? Hi, Christy. <laughs> no, I love it. <laughs> For me, it is. Oh, man. Good morning, Miss Laura. How are you doing? Very good. No, pre- I love that hair. I know. And she looks shaky. I know. Oh, that's right. Is it? Oh, how are you? I'm Beth. Yeah, it's nice to see. I think I've met you, but it's been a while. I may have. We're not at a birthday party or something? Yeah, I think so. I maybe have. I don't know. 
<laughs> We're happy you're here. Very happy you're here. Lawrence told me how wonderful this Bible school is. Oh. So really My mother always said, believe nothing you hear and only half of what you see. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. Okay, guys. You want to you start it? <clears throat> Low. <laughs> Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear. The hour I first believed Through many dangers, toils, and snares I have already come Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far And grace will lead me home the Lord has promised good to me. His word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. The earth shall soon dissolve like snow. The sun forbear to shine, but God who called me here below will be forever mine. When we've been there ten thousand years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Uh, Robert Morgan writes in his uh, great book, Then Sings My Soul, about this, about Newton, who wrote this song. <clears throat> it's hard to shake off a mother's influence. This is a ding, ding, dinger for all you girls. John Newton's earliest memories were of his godly mother, who, despite fragile health, devoted herself to nurturing his soul. At her knee, he memorized Bible passages and hymns. Though she died when he was about seven, he later recalled her tearful prayers for him. <clears throat> that, I think about Moses every time I read something like that, because how did he, how was Moses that strong when his mother only nurtured him until he weaned, until he's three or four years old? I mean, really? This is like amazing. What a power of a mother's prayers and, and, um, and, being in the scripture and showing. After her death, John alternated between boarding school and the high seas, waiting to live, wanting to live a good life, but nonetheless falling deeper and deeper into sin. Pressed into service with the British Navy, he deserted, was captured, and after two days of suspense was flogged. His subsequent thoughts vacillated between murder and suicide. I was capable of anything, he said. More voyages, dangers, toils, and snares followed his life. It was a life unrivaled in fiction. 
Then on the night of March the 9th, 1748, at 23, he was jolted awake by a brutal storm that descended too suddenly for the crew to foresee. The next day, in great peril, he cried to the Lord. He later wrote, The 10th of March is a day which remembered by me, and I have never suffered it to pass unnoticed since that year. The Lord came from on high and delivered me out of deep waters. That's Psalm 18. The next several years saw slow, halting spiritual growth in John, but in the end he became one of the most powerful evangelical preachers in British history, a powerful foe of slavery and the author of hundreds of hymns. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Never forget that. It's not about you. It's all about what he does in you. Okay, um, we passed around the prayer notebook, and if it, we may have to pass it around again if somebody wants to. Okay, Jonah 3, our verses for today are Jonah 3, 5 through 10. Talking about, uh, what is it, uh, loaves and fishes. I mean, I get these little bitty verses, passages, and I, I'm, just, I'm just trying to multiply. <laughs> like, okay, Lord, what are we going to do today? Yes. All right, the Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast, and all of them from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king, Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation to Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast or herd or flock taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction that he had threatened. Scripture tells us that the Ninevites believed God. That's the first thing that just jumped out at me. It reminds me of Genesis 15:6 regarding Abram, who God changed, who name changed to Abraham. Abram believed God, believed the Lord in 15:6, and he credited it to him as righteousness. Out of this one verse in Genesis, Paul writes in Romans 4, 3 through 5. What does scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, when a man works for his wages, works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. And again, Paul states in Galatians 3, 6, Consider Abraham. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understanding then that those who believe are children of Abraham, the scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. Abraham. It's not just the Jewish people. This was way back in Genesis. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Paul here in Galatians went centuries back and asked, consider Abraham. How was he, the father of the Jewish people, justified? The answer was simple and direct, noting in Genesis 15:6, Paul declared he believed God. It was credited to him as righteous. Do you believe God? Do you believe what he says to you? 
that you are children of the king. Then hold that head up high. Abraham's faith in God's ability to perform what he promised was accepted by God as righteousness. <clears throat> and so the patriarch was justified. Salvation is not by works, so that no one can boast before God. Paul tells us again in Ephesians 2, 4 through 5, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. For it is by grace you have been saved. It is by grace. It is nothing you have done, Beth. And further down in the same chapter, we discover in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast in his presence. No one can boast in his presence. The great missionary hope, therefore, is that when the gospel is preached in the power of the Holy Spirit, God himself does what man cannot do. He creates the faith that saves. The call of God does, not, does what the call of man cannot. It raises the dead, the dead life. It creates spiritual life. It is the call of Jesus to Lazarus in the tomb. Come out, Lazarus. And the dead woman and the dead man obeyed and came out. Or Ezekiel in the valley of the dry bones. Do y'all remember it? All those dry bones are on the thing. And he goes, son of man, can these bones live? And he goes, only you know that, Lord. Only you know that, sovereign Lord. He goes, and then God says, prophesy to these bones, Ezekiel. Do your calling, Ezekiel. We are called to call. We have a part in this. And so he prophesies and, and raised these bones, and the bones start raising to life, and they're there, but there was no spirit. And then, then God said, prophesy that the spirit will come, Ezekiel. And so he did, and the spirit came upon him the valley, in the valley of the dry bones. Ezekiel did the calling, but God gave the life. Ezekiel did the calling. So don't ever be thinking, oh, yeah, I said, you don't save anybody. God saves. God saves. But we're called to call. We can awaken someone from sleep of being dead in their sins with our call, but God alone can summon into being things that are not. Can you make something out of nothing? And the answer is no, you cannot. Only God can make things ex nihilo. That means he can bring forth life. He can bring forth something out of nothing. He alone gives life. He alone knows the condition of a heart. And he alone can change the leaning and a bias of a heart. We don't do that. He does that. He does that. Yet this does not negate our duty as believers to put forth the call. Paul tells us in Romans 10, 14 through 15, How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Romans 10, 14 through 15. And we are not to neglect the Lord's great commission to us either. In Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority. <laughs> All authority on earth and in heaven has been given to me. Therefore, go. You go and you make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. 
And surely I'm with you always, even to the very end of the age. You're not doing this alone. You're doing this with my power within you. Because flesh does nothing but get burned up in the end. Nothing. (coughs) Greg Lloyd says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants, Greg didn't say this, this is 1 Corinthians, but I'm just reading (laughs) Neither plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. We cannot really find an instance in the New Testament of anyone who came to faith apart from another person's involvement. Although there are exceptions, it's how most become Christians. Take, for example, the Philippian jailer. God could have reached him in many ways, but he chose to use Paul and Silas, who were imprisoned for preaching the gospel. And this is interesting, too. Well, I'll get that in a minute. They were, they were mistreated by this jailer. But when an earthquake struck and the prisoners could have gone free, they didn't. They stayed. And the jailer uh, would have faced execution had they escaped. Yet Paul chose to stay. The jailer asked, Sirs, what's my, what must I do to be saved? Why are you acting like this? That's, that's, it, gets, it gets the unbeliever's attention. What made you do that? That story of Beth Moore in the hair, airport, you know? What made you do that? It's Jesus within you. But, he, but in this entire household, the jailer and his entire household were saved. We find another example in Cornelius, a centurion in the Italian regiment who had a heart to know God. An angel appeared to him and told him he needed to talk to someone named Simon Peter who was in Joppa. So Cornelius sent for Peter, and Peter shared the gospel with him after he had had those dreams about the you know, uncircumcised people that he would... He, would, uh, he wouldn't eat them. Well, anyway. Then there is Saul of Tarsus, whom we know as Paul, who was converted on the Damascus Road after a direct encounter with Jesus. Yet the testimony of young Stephen opened and softened his heart. As he was sitting there watching Stephen be martyred, being killed, and he says, Lord, you know, forgive him. And he sees him. I see him up there. Mm. As the first martyr of the church, Stephen prayed as he was dying, Lord, do not charge the sin against them. Don't do it. What made him do that? What made him do that? Jesus in him. Yes, God uses people to reach people, but God is the one who saves them, not us. This seems rather obvious, but sometimes we forget it. God will prepare a person's heart to hear and receive the gospel, just as he had done to the Ninevites. Something had been going on that was stirring those hearts because God wanted Jonah there. And we can be obedient and and, and go, or we can be disobedient and end up in the belly. He's going to send somebody because any old rock will do. But you want to be the one to do it because you miss the blessing when you don't. He does. He always does the work. The other one that I was going to read is Michael Yusuf's um, God's Ambassador. And it says, In most cases, our citizenship to the country in which we live is bestowed upon us for simply being born in that country. Receiving citizenship into God's kingdom requires us to surrender our citizenship to this world and devote our lives to following Christ. Becoming a citizen of God's kingdom results in some incredible benefits. However, we must remember that whenever we go in the world, we are ambassadors for Christ. Just as your behavior in a foreign country gives others an idea of what people from your country are like, so our behavior as Christians tells the world what it means to be a Christian. That's why we've done such a miserable job. We blend with the world. We look like the world. We act like the world. And they're they're saying, 
But like some people say, well, it doesn't work for me. Well, yeah, because it's, as believers, we are infiltrating enemy territory armed with the truth of God's word, which will defeat the enemy's tired, empty propaganda. Those people who are desperate for answers cannot afford for believers to live passively in their faith. Do we live passively in our faith? We must be wise in our approach, yet gentle in our speech. Threats of eternal condemnation will not change many lives, but the truth about how God loves washes over our sin will transform the hardest of hearts as the Holy Spirit when the Holy Spirit is at work. To live in a world that is far from our home certainly presents a number of challenges, but our citizenship in God's kingdom empowers us to live in such a manner that God will use us to radically change the world around us. As we have said before, earth is not our home, heaven is. In the Hebrew text, there are seven words, just seven words in the NIV, anyway, in Jonah's message. In verse 4, yet in our passage for today, God uses those seven words to stir the entire population from the king on the throne to the lowest peasant in the field. The brevity and the terseness of Jonah's message says much about our prophet's attitude towards his God-given task. Okay, I'll do it. I mean, that's how you feel. You know, 40 days, none of us going to be destroyed. Like, please, begging you, think about this, you know. I'm going to do the least amount. His heart did not appear to be stirring up a revival in Nineveh at all. Indeed, he sadly appears to be doing the least he could do regarding God's requirements of him. Certainly not a very impressive for a, a prophet of the Most High God. But it is also a red flag for us as well to check our attitudes. I've called you to be to clean up that throw-up at 3 in the morning. <laughs> I've called you. You know what I'm saying? Let me just put it on levels that y'all can, that I, you know, that I get. Like, I called you to live in this 900-square-foot house with us with this loud, talk on speakerphone 24-7. <laughs> you know, so how are you going to respond to these things that annoy you? I mean, these, these little foxes in your vineyard that eat up your joy. They just do. It's like, Lord, I don't want that. And he has to teach me every day, over and over and over again. I mean, I'm teaching to myself. Y'all think I'm teaching to y'all? I'm teaching to moi, this girl that's sitting right here. This is not easy it's, <clears throat> we, to check our attitudes. Oftentimes, we appear just as stinking as our procrastinator, as our protagonist. Of all the unexpected twists in the Jonah story, though, this has to be the one we're least prepared for. When well, we've read it so many times, we realize it, but if we hadn't, it would be shocking. God had given the people 40 days of grace, but they didn't seem to need that long. We get the impression that from the very first time they saw Jonah and heard his warning, they paid attention to his message. The calling of a fast showed their total dedication and commitment to being right before God. This was emphasized by the fact that they caused the animals to fast as well. Jonah's message from God certainly had given them no reason for them to hope that he would withhold their punishment. There was no hope. There was no glimmer. There was no digging for gold in that 40 more days and you're going to be destroyed. I mean, where can you find hope in that? They could only trust in the mercy of God. Certainly, that is true for every single one of us. It is always true. Apart from Christ, we all stand before God's throne 
terribly wanting. Like, the, like those people in Daniel, you were weighed on the scales and found wanting. The word translated believed is translated from the Hebrew word aman. The basic meaning is to be firm, trustworthy, or safe. Thus, it means to regard the one believed in as trustworthy, to have trust in that person or thing. It is often used for trust in God as the one able to do God-like achievements. Nineveh was known as a religious city with temples to many gods, but in this instance, the people of Nineveh turned their backs on all their national gods and personal gods and turned to the God of Israel, who created the heavens and the earth. They recognized God's power and believed he would carry out the threats he had made through Jonah. And God is always going towards the fullness of time to do something which means he was going to prepare. He, he went ahead. We don't know what all went on in Nineveh. But he, he, had, gone, he had prepared. He had prepared. Everything is at his fullness of time. Sometimes it seems like the lengthiest time to get his fullness of time. But the time is, is all purposeful. And wait is purposeful. When we wait in pain, it's still purposeful. We discovered this in the concrete ways the citizens of Nineveh demonstrated their faith. As word spread quickly throughout the entire district, people humbled themselves by fasting and wearing sackcloth. A fast was called of eating no food or drink, and they donned sackcloth, the traditional clothing for mourning. Humility was the key here. God is ever seeking for that. In God's economy, our humility is always key. God speaks to Solomon in 2 Chronicles 7, 14 through 16. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now my eyes will be opened and my ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. I have chosen and consecrated this temple so that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be here. Humility, and y'all, I think about that as we are the temple, and so his, I think about his eyes and his heart will always be in each one of his believers. How does he do that? I don't know. Humility always precedes exaltation from the fiat of God's divine economy, always. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5, 5b through 7, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. James also tells us in 4, 6 through 10, but he gives us more grace. That was another thing that kept coming back to me this week. Grace, grace, grace. We need grace to be saved. We need grace to be sanctified. We need grace every single day day every moment of every hour every day this is what scripture says god opposes the proud but give grace gives grace to the humble submit yourselves into god resist the devil and he will flee from you come near to god and he will come near to you wash your hands you sinners purify your hearts you double-minded he doesn't want the double-minded who was i just listening to was talking about uh oh my goodness it was oh it was that boa guy ken boa I mean, I don't know why I was there. It was ridiculous. This, I got a call, a text from somebody I really don't know, and she was just saying, 
Kimbo's going to be at your church for just a minute for the women after, or no, he shouldn't even say that. She said, just Kimbo's going to be at your church after he speaks to the men that morning. And it was raining, up, and I, I wasn't thinking of going. And God said, you probably should go. You probably should go. You probably should go. Okay. So, you know, I throw on clothes. I get down here. And it was me. It was Kimbo and this guy that brought him. And this guy's a pretty big dude. I mean, he's written tons of books. He's gotten, he has a church in Atlanta. And anyway, and so, and these other two women that I don't really know, but in fact, I reintroduced myself to the one I was supposed to know. She goes, Oh, yeah, I know you. I just didn't have makeup on. I went, I, I'm an idiot. I, you know, I can't remember anything. But anyway, so he said, I said, tell, me, tell us your story. And he was a, uh, it was a long story. I mean, he, he had a very sordid past of, of drugs and all of these things. But he was, he basically was hallucinating. But he, he had been to church when he was a young child and then just went away. And there were two roads, and he was saying, God said, I cannot do both of these. I had to choose. You can't live double life. That's not following Christ. You cannot do it. All that to say, the double-minded has got to go. He says, purify you hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Um, and... Um, Voices from the Past, it says, this is by uh, Thomas Brooks, the humble soul endeavors more how to glorify God in afflictions than how to get out of them. Ooh, that was a sizzler. Yeah, I'm going to read that sentence one more time. The humble soul endeavors more how to glorify God in afflictions than how to get out of them. You know, he knows the intensity of each person's hate they're in right now. He knows the intensity of the fire. And what he's doing is he's either burning off stuff that needs to be burned off or he's putting in stuff that needs to be learned. Daniel, the three children, the apostles, and all these worthies of whom the world was not worthy were concerned for the glory of God. Are we more concerned for the glory of God than for our own glory? They were willing to be anything and bear anything that God might be glorified. They made it their business to glorify God in the fire, in the prison, in the den, rack, and under the sword. The humble soul says, Lord, keep down my sins and keep up my heart to honor you in all my troubles. Though my burdens are doubled and troubles multiply, help me to honor you by trusting, waiting, and submitting to you. And I shall sing my cares away and say, it is enough. Oh, that my, oh, but when a proud man under troubles is full of plans to get off his chains and out of his furnace, the proud heart will say anything, do anything, and be anything to free himself from the burdens that press him. And that's basically what we see in Jonah. He's being, he didn't want to do that. And you'll see in our next passage that we're going to be studying this is his attitude. Check the attitude. A little will satisfy the humble soul, but nothing Nothing will satisfy a proud man's lust. The humble says, Lord, give me bread and clothing and you shall be my God. Give me much of Christ and heaven in my heart and food convenient to support my natural life. And please have hot coffee. <laughs> no, it doesn't say that. And it is enough. The proud are never content. A crowd did not content a, a, a crown 
did not content Ahab, but he must have Naboth's vineyard. I mean, he just, I mean, David would have had anything, could have had anything. God, he said, I would have given you anything more. Why did you sin against me? Why did you do this? Diogenes was more content with a tub to shelter him and a wooden dish to eat it in than Alexander the Great had with the conquest of half the world and all the treasures, pleasures, and glories of Asia. A humble soul is more content with Daniel's vegetables than proud princesses are with crowns and golden scepters. The humble soul also rejoices in the graces and the accomplishments of others as well as in their own. There is no envy in spiritual things. Beg him. Beg him to give you a humble spirit. Give me a humble soul, Lord. This, is a, this was a cool little story. We're in a, and I'm Robert Moore. I love this. I love that book too, Lord. I always tell you that every time I say it, but I do. I'll read it all the time. But this is a, this is a good little thing. It's on this day in Christian history. And, it, and the title of it is God Looked Down. Think of what you were when you were called, said Paul. Not many of you were wise, influential, of noble birth, but God chose the foolish things, praise him. Da, 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 da. That was in 1 Corinthians. I, it had started in a bus in England. Gladys Alward, I don't know how to pray, say her name, a poorly educated 28-year-old parlor maid was reading about China and the need for missionaries there. And from that moment, China became her life and her passion. She applied to a missionary agency only to be turned down. Crushed and disappointed, she returned to her small servant's room and turned her pocketbook upside down. Two pennies fell on top of her Bible. Oh God, she prayed, here's my Bible, here's my money, here's me. Gladys began hoarding every cent to purchase passage to China. She knew she couldn't afford to travel by ship. So she decided to go overland by train right across Europe and Asia, though it meant slicing through a dangerous war zone on the Manchurian border. On October the 15th, 1932, a little bewildered party gathered at London's Liverpool Street Station to see Gladys Elward off for China. The journey was hair-raising and nearly cost her her life. But eventually Gladys reached China, showing up at the home of an older missionary who took her in but didn't quite know what to do with her. And yet, to make a long story short, Gladys Elward eventually became one of the most amazing single women missionaries of modern history. Her missions career was so extraordinary that the world finally took notice. Her biography was made into a movie starring Ingrid Bergman. She dined with such dignitaries as Queen Elizabeth, and she spoke in great churches. She even became a subject of the television program, This Is Your Life. But Gladys never grew accustomed to the limelight, for her heart was always in Asia. I wasn't God's first choice for what I've done in China, she once said. There was somebody else. I don't know who it was. God's first choice, at least. I don't know what happened. Perhaps he died. Perhaps he wasn't willing. And God looked down, and he saw Gladys. Let him look down and see you. Let him see you. Raise your hand. We are the ones that missed. The man that didn't go, he was the one that missed the blessing. Any old rock will do. They will. Okay. Um, John Bloom. I'm just, I know y'all think I'm... I had so many things. I was like, okay, well, whatever. Um, the faithful will look foolish for now. 
just like when they were all bewildered at the um, at the train station putting her on that train. It's like, what are you doing? What are you doing? Sometimes it doesn't look like the like the world would look, and we do look foolish. John Bloom, whom I love, he writes for Desiring God, the wisdom of God is often only fully seen in retrospect. When a man's wisdom... The wisdom of God is often only fully seen in retrospect, in the weird view mirror. When man's wisdom has passed as a fad, the mountain of God's truth remains. Amen, amen, amen. Whereas time exposes the world's wisdom... It will only vindicate God's and anyone who faithfully declared it to the world. If you want a good picture, this is truth, y'all. This is what's really going to happen. If you want a good picture of what the church looks like before the world, think about Jesus before Pontius Pilate. Put yourself as an observer in the governor's headquarters that morning, witnessing the interaction between the two. Who appeared weak and who appeared strong? Who sounded foolish and who sounded sensible? Which ones seemed to be pursuing the best outcomes for all involved? The governor and the Lord. Are you the king of the Jews? Pilate asked. My kingdom is not of this world. You've got to be kidding. Pilate rubbed his eyes in exasperation. For Pontius Pilate, the man standing before him, was a major inconvenience. For Pontius Pilate, the man standing before Jesus, was a major inconvenience. The Romans governor's agenda for the day hadn't included trying some renegade rabbi in trouble with the Sanhedrin. And first thing in the morning at that, the council wanted him to pronounce this man guilty of capital treason today before the Passover. Pilate resented the pressure. His patience strained at the seams. He, he heard of this controversial Jesus before, but hadn't felt a need to bother with him. The intelligence he'd received provided profiled just another Jewish mystical teacher. Some claimed he had miracle powers, but there had been no reports of Jesus denouncing the emperor or calling for revolt against Rome. Apparently, he had even inspired some Roman soldiers, but there was no accounts of disloyalty as a result. The easy way out. It wasn't that Pilate had qualms about dispatching a Jewish troublemaker when needed, but this situation gave him a bad feeling. Jerusalem was swelling with Passover celebrities. Not a good time for political dispatch. If Jesus himself hadn't called for a vote, executing him just might. He was popular with the peasants, and the Jewish zealots would seize any opportune moment. Yet Jesus wasn't helping his own cause. He had no political savvy at all. Had he no political savvy at all? In asking, are you the king of the Jews, Pilate had essentially offered him a quick exit from execution. All Jesus needed to give were a couple of quick, clear denials, and he'd be off Roman's excruciating hook. The Sanhedrin would have to have solved their own problem, and the governor would, could get on with the day's important work. But Jesus replies, my kingdom is not of this world. Just made the unnecessary situation worse. Come on, man, if you don't want to die, don't mention a kingdom, imaginary or not, to the Roman governor. Now Pilate was forced to probe further. Who was delusional? So you're a king, Pilate asked. Jesus answered him, you rightly say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who listens to me, 
who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate couldn't help but a sardonic snort, just what he thought, a Jewish mystic with a head in the clouds, delusional clearly, but a real political threat to Rome or anyone else, clearly not. Jesus was a king of truth, whose only subjects were those willing to listen to his voice. Pilate figured they would never amount to enough for a rebellion. Plus, Jesus' servants didn't want to fight worldly powers. This was religious madness, not treason. Jesus didn't need to be killed. Then Pilate had an idea. There was a way out of this mess, a way to release Jesus so Rome could look benevolent, the Sanhedrin safe face, and the Jewish masses could be placated. The Passover prisoner release. As he got up to pitch the idea to the Jews, he sarcastically remarked to the king of truth, what is truth? Looking straight at it. World and church. Sitting in his headquarters that morning, Pilate had the full authority of the Roman Empire behind him, which is the greatest empire on earth at the time. Jesus appeared to have no one. He stood there despised and rejected by men and men of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Pilate's words must have sounded reasonable given the apparent context. Jesus' words must have sounded delusional and strange. Pilate seemed to be pursuing a politically pragmatic course that would stave off an unjust execution, frustrating but not alienating the Jewish council and keeping the civil peace for Jerusalem. Jesus inexplicably seemed to do nothing to avoid crucifixion. because he had his heart resolutely set towards it. However, with the benefit of retrospect, we see what, that Jesus was strong and Pilate weak. Pilate only wielded authority by God's decree in John 19.11. We see that Jesus was wise and Pilate was foolish. The governor only found Jesus' words unintelligible because he heard them as from a natural man in 1 Corinthians 2.14. And we see that Jesus, not, nat- not Pilate, knew what would make for the best outcome of all involved. Pilate had no idea of the peace Jesus was pursuing for billions as he sought to merely keep the peace of the city. This is the position of the church in the world. Though God will station his people in places of governmental influences, Joseph's and Daniel's, but those are rare. Those aren't that many. Most of us aren't Joseph's and Daniel's and those of Caesar's household in Philippians. The church will not wield the power of the world. It will stand in the weak places saying truths that sound delusional to worldly authorities and pursuing aims that will be misunderstood and misinterpreted. But its position will in reality be strong because the foolishness of God is wiser than man and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. You will be my witnesses. As Jesus witnessed to his governing authorities and as Paul witnesses to his and was told, Paul, you are out of your mind, this brilliant man. So Jesus tells us, you will be my witnesses in Acts 1.8. For some of us, that will literally mean standing before governors and kings for Christ's sake. Mark 13, 9. But whether we're called to stand before government officials or co-workers or neighbors or family members or even our children, what we have to say often will, in the immediate context, sound strange. Sounds strange. We will feel how foolish it sounds to them, and we will feel our apparently weak position. 
That's when we need to remember Jesus before Pilate. What matters is not how things appear. <laughs> Amen. And sound in the awkward or even deathly serious moment. What matters is being faithful to the truth. Are you standing on the truth? Like Pilate didn't know the truth. What is truth? What is truth? I am truth, Jesus says. I am the way and the truth and the life. What matters is being faithful to that. Even if that, is, even if that audacious sounding claim only elicits a sardonic sort, like it snort, like it did with Pilate. Most people, <laughs> right, you know. What is ultimately significant, what God is actually doing in and through the moment is frequently only seen in retrospect. I wish I could write like him. Um, okay. Here's the, this is Macintosh. Here is the divine antidote against the pride and restless ambition of the men of this world. Nothing is more sad than to witness a pushing, bustling, forward, self-confident spirit and style in those who profess to be followers of him who is meek and lowly in heart. Most of the people know what Christians are against and what they're for, sadly. It's such a flagrant contradiction of the spirit that precepts and precepts of Christianity, and it is a sure accompaniment of an unbroken condition of the soul. It's pride. It's pride. You're like, it's my point. I want you to accept my point. It's utterly impossible for anyone to indulge in a boastful, pretentious, self-confident spirit if ever he has really measured himself in the presence of God, just like Job said. He was asking all these questions, you know, to him, and, and like, you know, why is this happening, blah, 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 and then God says, it doesn't answer him in, in the questions he's asked. God just says, where were you when I did da, 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 da. Let me tell you about me, Job. Let me tell you what I have done. I mean, that silence is everything. To be much alone with God is a sovereign remedy for pride and self-complacency. But y'all, this world is so loud, and Satan will do anything he can to keep you from being quiet before him. And rushing, 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 and hurry, 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 and noise everywhere. And there's no silence that you can hear that still, small voice speak to you. Beth, I'm down here. Beth, Beth. May we know the reality of this and the secret of our own souls. May the good Lord keep us truly humble in all our ways, simply leaning on himself and his grace. And if you don't lie prostrate, Spurgeon says, on the ground before the cross, you have never seen it. You are not humbled in the, if you are not humbled in the presence of Jesus, you don't know him. You were so lost that nothing could save you but the sacrifice of God's only son. Think of that. And as Jesus lowered himself for you, bow yourself in lowliness at his feet. A sense of Christ's amazing love to us has a greater tendency to humble us than even the conscious awareness of our own guilt. Pride cannot live beneath the cross. It is a contradiction to be a true Christian and not to be humble, Richard Baxter says. And lastly, stoop if you want to climb to heaven. Is it not said of Jesus, he who descended is the one who also ascended? who, being very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being found in human likeness, and being as, as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So much you. You must grow downwards that you may grow upwards. 
for the sweetest fellowship with heaven will be enjoyed by humble souls and by them alone. God will deny no blessing to a thoroughly humble spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven with all its riches and treasures. All of God's resources will be made available to the soul that is humble enough to be able to receive them without growing proud because of it. It's so easy to be, even spiritual things, to become proud of it. And you can feel that in people. You can, you can feel that raising up. When a man is sincerely humble and never tries to take the credit or the praise, hmm, there is scarcely any limit to what God will do for him. Amen to that. Humility makes us ready to be blessed by the God of all grace and equips us to deal efficiently with our fellows. True humility is a flower that will adorn any garden. This is a sauce that will season every dish of life and improve it in every case, whether in prayer or praise, whether in work or suffering. The genuine salt of humility cannot be used in excess. Spurgeon, of course it is. As we have discovered the words of Jonas, as we have discovered, the words of Jonas spread rapidly through every quarter of greater Nineveh. The Ninevites accepted this message and believed God. As the prophet preached doom, the people ironically changed. Earlier, Jonah had repented, and now these Gentiles repented. And as we discovered, as outward symbols of inward contrition and humiliation, they fasted and put on sackcloth. People in every social strata, from the greatest to the least, hoped that God might turn from his anger and spare them. When news reached the king of Nineveh, he too joined in the greatest and the lowest in putting on these garments on. The king of Nineveh would also have been the king of the entire Assyrian Empire. And y'all, this is like, you know, the biggest empire going, the most vicious, and, and you know, and, and he's humbling himself. This was not done back then. One of the most powerful men on earth. Amazingly, and very unintentionally, Jonah became the most effective preacher ever. What a wonderful testimony of God's grace reaching to the ends of the world. The Ninevites repented, and God's glorious compassion shone brighter than the sun. Surely this had to be one of the greatest spiritual revivals in history. Yet Jonah seemed so disinterested in it all. I mean, so blasé, so uncaring about the salvation of these souls. He didn't want them to be saved. The Bible gives no reason for the king to have listened to Jonah, except for the power of God's message on the people and on his own heart. The king's remorse led him and his nobles to issue a royal decree by making the fast official and issuing an edict ordering the people to humble themselves and cry out to God and turn from their evil ways. Not only cry out, not only humble themselves, but turn. That's true repentance. That was the Hebrew way of repentance. Quite literally, caused a cry to help go out. The king thus called on all citizens to join him in a national cry for help. This is a matter of life and death. The decree affected every living thing in the land. Even the animals were included. The extent of their repentance is shown by the extent of their fast. Indeed, humans and animals the same way. The decree instructed the people to fast, to wear sackcloth, to call urgently on God, and to, and to relinquish their wickedness. Again, um, this, this is all the following the king. This practice 
was not strange to the Near East. It was simply another sign of the people's remorse. This was something that was done, and this was something that was done often, evidently. The king's purpose in the decree is discovered in the who knows, and I love this. Who knows? I mean, he did all this, and who knows what's going to happen? Who knows? As it hints at the possibility of God's withdrawing his threat and staying his hand. By their contrition, the king hoped that Jonah's God would relent. But he had no, no proof of that, of his judgment, and turned from his burning anger, thereby sparing the city. The fear of judgment from God is jaw-dropping startling because the Assyrians were a cruel and violent nation and were not afraid of anybody. Yet the king credited God with having the power to change things. If the Lord did not relent and change his way, then Assyria would have had no hope. And the king of Assyria appeared to be fully aware of this. The wording, who knows, is very reminiscent to me of King David's words when the Lord struck the child he and Bathsheba had had through their adulterous relationship, and the child became very ill. We find in 2 Samuel 12, 19 through 23, David noticed that his servants were whispering among themselves and realized the child was dead. Is the child dead, he asked. Yes, they replied, he's dead. Then, then David got up from the ground. After he had washed, put on lotions, and changed his clothes, he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. So he got up, washed, and worshipped. Then he went to his own house, and at his request, they served him food, and he ate. His servants asked him, Why are you acting this way? I mean, prior to this, he had been mourning and grieving and begging and crying, just like the Ninevites. Why, why are you now all of a sudden acting this way? While the child was alive, David said, no, while the child was alive, the servant said, you fasted and wept, but now that the child is dead, you get up and eat? This was confusing to them. He answered, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, who knows, are two words. I thought, who knows? This is King David. The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him in heaven, meaning eventually, I will go to him, but he will not come back to me. So David did what, what we, are, we are called to do. You know, he, he fasted and wailed and mourned. His, his who knows you know, didn't come into fruition like, like the Ninevites did because this was a God-given um, repercussion, I guess you could say, of the sin. Uh, and had it started earlier, see how sin affects so many people? You know, when he first looked out and saw her, and so many times God sent ways to stop that, and he didn't do it. And so consequences start bounding and bounding and bounding. Same thing. While the king of Nineveh's edict had included the passive wearing of sackcloth and not eating or drinking, it also called for positive action. Everyone was called to urgent, 
Everyone was to call urgently on God, yet praying desperately was not enough. Everyone must turn from their ways as well. Hebrew way, the Hebrew way of calling for repentance. It remains God's way of calling for repentance now as well. You know, turn from your wicked ways. You know, that's it. true repentance is going that way, and then you're just turning and you're going this way. It's not just, I'm sorry. That's not true repentance. Or, I'm sorry for the consequences. That's not true repentance. The king specified it as turning from their violence, meaning their oppression, violence, wickedness, wrong, and unrighteous gain. This may refer to what a serious war practices by which they treated conquered nations and captive prisoners with their great cruelty. You know, they, they were to turn from all of this cruelty. His hope was that the people's actions would bring a divine reaction of compassion from God and that he would relent and turn from his burning anger, staying his hand so that they would not perish. Interestingly, in this, the king of Assyria credited God with the power to change things. This pagan king credited God with the power. Yes, he can do whatever he wants to do. Again, the king knew if the Lord did not change his decision, then Assyria had no hope. The king points to the one high, all-powerful God in control of his fate. Had the Assyrian king, like the pagan sailors, come to recognize the exclusive claim to deity made by God's Israel? Israel's God, I mean. To loathe my own sin, Spurgeon says, to humble myself on account of my own personal faults and to endeavor in the sight of God to renounce every false way is a work of something more than human nature. Remember, when Jonah had been in dire straits, he recalled the promise concerning Solomon's temple, looking toward the temple and calling out for God for help. Also included in Solomon's prayer was a promise for the people outside of the nation of Israel, and that would have included the Ninevites, obviously. In 2 Chronicles 6, 32-33, it states, As for the foreigner who does not belong to your people, Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. See, all of these things cause people to look up. Like in the Israelites in the past, when they were, when they were doing all these um, successful things that God was doing for them, they were going, people were afraid of the Israelites. They were afraid of the God of the Israelites. It pointed to God, not to them. When, and that's like when we were talking about before how our lives... If we claim faith, it points to God how we live. You know, how do you live your life? It says, if they, if by, uh, Israel come from a different, distant land because of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays towards this temple, then hears from heaven your dwelling place and do whatever the foreigner asks of you so that all the peoples of the earth may know that your name and fear you and do your own and do as your own people Israel and may know that this house I have built bears your name. Also in Second Chronicles later, 13 through 16, when I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command locusts to devour the land or send a plague among my people, if my people who are called by name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, and I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will always be there. And I've already read that. I guess I just wanted to hear it again. Uh, um, now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. I have chosen and consecrated this temple so that my name may be there forever. 
My eyes and my heart will always be there. Jonah knew this promise, and perhaps it was the basis for the whole awakening. Like the sailors in the storm, the Ninevites did not want to perish. Indeed, that is what witnessing is all about, guys. The turning of perishing souls to the God who can save them. The turning of perishing souls to the God that can save them. The very familiar verses in John 3, 16 through 18. And so I uh, thought when I left, okay, Beth, you're not going to complain this week. I'm not going to complain about anything. Well, I made it to nukes. <laughs> not quite to nukes, but and I'm sure I was going, seriously, lady, you're going so I mean, you know, it's insane how much I complain. I mean, it's crazy. And you, and you think about it, you don't, you think, okay, well, maybe, as I asked Bob, I said, is it complaining if you're just stating a fact? <laughs> Sometimes. Yeah, pretty much. So, anyway, okay. Pass around, did y'all pass around the notebook, the prayer notebook? It's, yeah, it's going. Okay, perfect. Yeah. All right. Jonah 4, 1 through 3. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? I'm just making, this is the way I'm thinking he's sounding, right? (laughs) (laughs) That that is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, oh, Lord, take my life, for it is better for me to live, better for me to die than to live. Just take it. I am so done with this. How do we behave when we don't get our way? Does our flesh boil and our blood pressure rise? Do we pout or complain? Do we grumble or become angry? Do we scream or do we sulk? Do we seek to be like-minded with God or are we displeased over what pleases him? Is it bad if you do all those things? I don't think so. <laughs> I hope not. Check. Check. I know. I mean, really, exactly. I was like, I, I mean, I'm not kidding. I have been raked over the coals this week because, my, I mean, it's like, oh, Lord, I can't even teach this. I mean, like, I, I, I memorized this thing when I was in high school. We had these sororities, and they're like, my name is Rat Beth Hazerig. I'm the lowest form of living matter on the face of this earth. Everything and all things are superior to me, especially you, ma'am. I mean, <laughs> talk about building self-esteem. You walk in at the, at the, at the initiations, and there are, I mean, it's totally dark. I'm probably telling secrets, but the tick is not anymore, so it doesn't really matter. It's just totally dark, and they're going, rat, 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 screaming rat out. And you have to stand on this thing, and I'm shaking. like I mean, I'm like in the ninth grade, for heaven's sakes. And, that, and then you have to say, um, um, uh, the the Greek letter backwards and forwards like I mean I still remember all this stuff because it terrified me you know but anyway I don't know why I'm saying this why that came out but anyway repeat the line do we seek to be do we seek to be like minded with God this is what we, we are to do or are we displeased over what pleases him and like the prophet Jonah simply sick and done with it all we just want to run away. I'm, I'm done with this. I'm done with this. 
It's kind of like when you walked in and Wolfie had had an accident all over that bathroom. It's like, oh, don't think I'm going to go there. <laughs> Shut the door. Yeah, run away, whatever. It's just like, over this. Once we lose sight of God, that's why when, when I want y'all to think about him now being your vision. His ways, your ways. Is his, his, your, he is your vision. Once we lose sight of God and his ways, we begin to be reckless with both our words and our actions. Our time. Wait, slow, slow down. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it's like a... And we're reckless with our resources. And let me just give you a little heads up right here. Everything is his. Your very life is his. And everything we are held accountable for. That is precisely what happened to our protagonist. We begin to act on our own initiative. And we cease having God's vision and his disposition to ever show mercy. We just want to blast them. How could you do that to me? How could this happen to me or whatever? Remember, everything belongs to him, and we are held accountable for all that he has placed in our hands, in our lives as well. Do everything without grumbling. Like I said, this is very convicting. Do everything without grumbling and complaining, Philippians tells us. Paul tells us in Philippians, it's remarkably easy to breeze by this command without really hearing those two instructive words, all things, or everything. Do all things without grumbling. Yes, all things. Wake up with a sore throat. Receive criticism. Pay a parking ticket. Shovel spring snow. Host house guest. Discipline your children. Change a flat tire. Answer emails. And do everything else without one murmuring word. One. This is a hard saying, we might be tempted to say. Who can listen to it? Yeah, only through the power of the Holy Spirit within you, because your flesh will not be able to do this. Many of us wake up set to grumble. <laughs> and more. <laughs> I know a few of those people. <laughs> and, and move through our day murmuring at a great variety of objects that get in our way. We may dress it up in nicer words like venting, being honest, getting something off my chest, or even sharing a prayer request. But God knows what we're doing because, of course, he knows our hearts. And if we really think about it, we often do too. I mean, it's a manipulative device, but we try to paint it. Like I was telling you about, like, a, like it being a snob or something. I painted it with, a, a, oh, I'm just different interest. You know, you know what I'm saying? You paint it with a picture that's palatable to your spirit. Grumbling is the hum of the fallen human heart. Isn't that a great line? It's the hum. It's the undercurrent of the fallen human heart. And it often... <clears throat> a hallmark of Christians' indwelling sin. And that makes non-grumblers a peculiar people in this world. As Paul goes on to tell us, those who do all things without grumbling 
burn like great sun in the world of darkness. They shine like stars in the universe as they hold out the word of life because they are so different from what the world is. The voice of the discontentment. Paul's use of the word grumbling and his reference to Deuteronomy 32.5 in the next verse takes us back to the desert between Egypt and Canaan where we meet that group of experienced grumblers. Deuteronomy what? Deuteronomy 32.5. What do 40 years in the wilderness teach us about grumbling? They teach us that grumbling is discontentment made audible. It's, it's your heart coming out. The heart's Contempt escaped through the mouth. It is the sound we make when we have a strong craving or something we do not have and we begin to grow restless or something we have that we do not want and we begin to grow restless. I added that. The object of our craving need not be evil and often it didn't. The Israelites, for example, reached for pleasures quite harmless in themselves, food and water a safe passage to the promised land, comfort. But their desires for these good things somehow turned bad. It's so easy to do because I'm a maxi person. If a little is good, a lot is better, right? They wanted them sooner than God chose to give them, and they wanted them more than they wanted God himself. That's the kicker right there. It's, it's, it's all about priority. It's not about wanting that. It's wanting it more than you want God. So too with us. We want a relaxing evening at home, but we get a call from a friend who needs help moving. We want a job that feels meaningful, but we get stuck among spreadsheets. Or more significantly, we want the future we've planned for, but we get one we never wanted. Unfair? It's in October. Says some voice within us. That's not right, says another. Desires become expectations. And expectations become rights. They're not rights. And instead of bringing our disappointments to God and allowing his words to steady us, we let unmet desires fester into discontentment and we grumble. Murmuring against our good, y'all, because everything he allows is for your good. He He is in the business of making you into the image of his son. And everything he allows in your life is towards that end. He wants to take out what's in the heart that's not of him, and he wants to put in the heart what is. We grumble when our faith in God's good purposes falter, unwilling to trust that God is crafting this disappointment for our good. We have to go back, do I trust him? Do I believe what he says is true? We have eyes only for the painful now. Where are your eyes? Where do your circumstances, don't keep them on your circumstances. Look up, look up. I mean, in Asaph, all of them in the poem, <clears throat> in the Psalms, <clears throat> the, you know, they can be so downtrodden. Why are you so downtrodden on myself? Put your hope in God. Put your hope in God. There's all these promises in Scripture that, that show you. Look up, look up, look up. Don't be looking on your circumstances. They'll just take you down. When the Israelites finished burying the last of the wilderness generation, Moses revealed God's purposes in all their desert trials. God led you through the great and terrifying wilderness that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. That's in Deuteronomy 8, 15 and 16. What a tragic commentary on those graves in the desert. 
On every tombstone in, the, in that wilderness was carved the words, we grumbled against our own good. And that's what we're doing. When we're in a situation, I'm not saying the situation is good. I'm not saying the circumstance is good. But what he is bringing out of it is good. And he has allowed you to be there. He knows the intensity of the heat. He knows it. He knows what, all of that. God has already told them as much after their first episode of grumbling, he presented them with a choice. They would either diligently listen to his voice in, in 1526 in Exodus, or they would follow the raging mob within themselves. Hmm. Well, we know the story. They follow the mob. There was, a, there was a group of people that went in with Israelites after they left Egypt, and they called them the rabble, and they really weren't Israelites, but the rabble caused a lot of trouble because they were the ones the most grumbling, and so the Israelites joined in right with them. Uh, <clears throat> our own grumbling, likewise, relies on an interpretation of God, ourselves, and the world that is utterly out of step with reality. Of course, it feels like reality. The serpent's voice always does. We grumble because we have diligently listened to a voice other than the Lord our God's, and we have begun to repeat the words. Instead of crying out to God, help me trust that you are good, we mutter and spill and vent in the equivalent of saying, God, your ways are not good. Let go of grumbling. Like all temptations common to man, the temptation to grumble always comes with a way of escape. That's what I was just telling you. Look for that door. When you feel like you're in the grappling, grumbling state, look for the door of escape. And it's usually right here and up. But how? How can we confront our tendencies to murmur and amazingly begin to do all things without grumbling? Repent of wayward desires. When you do recognize some grumbling words, stop and ask yourself, what am I wanting right now more than I want God's will? What, what am I wanting right now more than I want God's will? What craving has become more important than God's commandments? What desire has grown sweeter than knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord? It's on Facebook. Photo, I don't know what, whatever, uh, uh, cooking the best meal, having the best house, having the best children. You know, we all these things are not bad. This is what's so insidious about sin. And it's so easy to just get sucked into it. Grumbling does not spout forth from us because of a problem out there. <laughs> this is where the kicker lies. But because the problem is right here. It's right in every single one of us. No outward circumstances compels me to grumble. The same apostle who said, do all things without grumbling, was wearing chains in the gospel as he wrote, yet Philippians is drenched in gratitude, not grumbling. It is the joy letter of the Bible. More than that, at the center of Paul's letter is a Savior who humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. God has given us everything we need to let go of grumbling, even in prison, even on the road to our own execution. In addition to recognizing our grumbling then, we need to repent of those wayward desires that would keep us from saying with Paul, it is my eager expectation and hope that Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. 
whether by comfort or disappointment, whether by hope fulfilled or hope deferred. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. Remember God's word of life because our grumbling relies on a false interpretation of reality. I think this is it, Lord, but I know that's not what you're doing. We need God to reinterpret our circumstances for us. He is not up there trying to make you miserable. Therefore, as Paul tells us, we put away grumbling by holding fast to the word of life. Amen to that. Hold fast implies effort and attention. Grumbling will rarely flee if we merely wave around the vague thoughts of God's goodness. We need to take specific words from God with ruthless intensity. Hold on to them. I remember when I was in, in Fort Payne and I was just, you know, I would be going, Christ is my sufficiency, Christ is my strength. I mean, I like mantra, Christ is my sufficiency, Christ is my strength. Over and over and over again, there's myriads of things you can, you can, you can pick and just, and just keep dwelling on those things. Set your hearts on things above. Set your minds on things above. Not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. For these the wrath of God are coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips, and grumbling. What words from God should we hold fast to in these moments? And then you just pick them. There's tons of them. Any that confront us, our inner clamor of voices with the truth of God's abundant goodness. That's Psalm 31, 9. Our benefits in Christ, Psalm 103, 1 through 5. The brightness of our future, 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9. God's sovereignty over trials. James 1, 2 through 4. And the pleasure of obedience. Psalm 19, 10 through 11. Or it's to stick near the context of Paul's command. Consider holding on to this gem of promise. My God will supply all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Not all your wants, but all of your needs. Glorious riches for every need are ours in Christ. Hold fast to that word. Finally, take these words and turn them back to God, who is our very present help in time of trouble. Lord, help me. I'm, that's my biggest prayer. Help me. Help me. <laughs> I'm like Peter. I go across through the room going, help me, help me. I can't do this. Because I know. I know you can't. And I'm like, help me, help me, help me. Every decision to grumble is a decision not to pray. It is. Not to pour out our hearts before God. And he, he can take it. Get on that floor. Put your face to the mat and pray. Cry out. Do not, not to draw near to his powerful throne of grace is wrong. Every decision to pray is a decision not to grumble. So if you feel that well enough into it, start praying. Of course, it gets your focus on him. Of course, even in prayer, the fight continues, for sure. Our minds often wander back to whatever that person or circumstances agitated us. But keep bringing your mind back around. Keep wrangling your focus back to the God who made you, knows you, loves you, bought you, and will bring you holiness to you completion of the day and on the completion of the day of Christ Jesus. Grumbling cannot abide in the presence of this Jesus. 
Over time, it must make a way for gratitude. That's another thing that is um, hugely important is, is, is gratitude. If you start writing down and just force yourself to write down, you know, like the thousand gifts, write down your gratitude every morning. It gets your, it gets your mind focused on what all he has done for us. Okay, boy, that was a long one. I'm sorry. In our verses for today, we discovered Jonah's clearly transparent feelings. How like God to place our protagonist into a situation that reveals the true character of his heart. And that is exactly what he does to every single one of us. He's all about making your heart alive to you, knowing what's in your heart. Sometimes you can think, How did, where did that come from? And you never get there. And I'm also, I've told you all this a million times before, but I'm always preaching to me. <laughs> I mean, when I'm doing this, I'm thinking, oh, okay. I mean, I, I mean and I'm not just saying, preaching to y'all. I'm preaching to me. How often does he do this to us as well? Not a pretty sight, to say the least. We are so prone to delude ourselves. Oh, we're not that bad. We, we always pick somebody way worse that we can compare ourselves to, so we feel better about ourselves. It's so far, it's uber easy to sickeningly be self-righteous in our own eyes. Or we can often become drunk on our own potential. As well as some sage put it, God desires for us to guard our hearts, meaning to protect, keep, obey, observe, behold, and inspect. He wants us to guard it. Make sure you don't have any breaches in that wall of self-control. We are to be watchmen of our own hearts. Not of somebody else's, but of our own. Above all else, Proverbs 4.23, guard your heart. Above all else, guard your heart. For it is a wellspring of life. In the Bible, the whole spectrum of human emotions is attributed to the heart. And it is also the seat of the will. Good morning. Winsome. Wisdom and understanding also reside in the heart. Wisdom and understanding also reside in the heart. In scripture, heart can also signify the mind, discernment, and good sense. The heart can be deceived, and it can, and it is the point of origin of all moral evil. Because when it gets in there and then it, it comes, it falls to the hands. See how very, it starts in the head, goes to the heart, goes to the hands. Head, heart, hands, always. That's the, that's the way it goes. The prophet Jeremiah writes, the heart is deceitful above all else and beyond cure. Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I search it and examine the mind to reward a man according to his conduct, according to what his deeds deserved. Do you want to be like Jesus? That's what he's doing. He's searching your heart to see what's well, like my son. You can't do this on your own. It's only through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Put to death the sinful nature. Put to death the fallen nature. If the book of Jonah had ended in this last verse of chapter 3, history would have portrayed Jonah as the greatest of all prophets. After all, preaching one message that motivated thousands of people to repent and turn to God was no small accomplishment. But the Lord does not look at the outward things. He does not look at the worldly accomplishments. Rather, God looks at and examines the motivation of the heart. What is the motivation behind the action? Weigh it. Always weigh it. Remember, our motivation is important. 
important in the eyes of God. Unlike man, God looks inward and not outward. And sadly, we can't Photoshop our hearts, no matter how hard we may try. Scripture tells us in 1 Samuel 16, 7, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God also weighs the motives of man's heart. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's heart. Have you ever been deluded by somebody's actions when they portray themselves to be something that they are not? When inside they're all wickedness and evil, but outside they're, they're portraying themselves to be stellar and upstanding? We, we were... We were very privy to that in this last five years of our, of our life, or ten years, where we were. It, it, it takes your breath away. It, 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 it's like, wow. To me, if, you're, if you want to be a Christian, be a Christian. If you don't want to be a Christian, don't be a Christian. Why are, you, why are you doing this? Why are you saying, I'm a Christian, and then you're not acting that way? At that time, we will... Receive each receive his praise from God. Chronicles says, and you, my son Solomon, First Chronicles twenty eight nine. Write this down and pray for this over your children. And you, my son, whoever or my daughter, acknowledge the God of your father, and serve him with wholehearted devotion. David knew you leave one little crack in that heart, and it's going to be a goner, because that's where Satan hits. What is the passage? Yeah, what is it again? First Chronicles twenty eight nine. And you, my son Solomon, acknowledge the God of your fathers and serve him with wholehearted devotion and a willing mind. God, I'll get into that in a minute. For the Lord searches every heart. He searches every heart. And he understands every motive behind the thought. Every one. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. Chapter 4 clearly reveals the thoughts and intents of the prophet Jonah's heart and exposes his sins. Indeed, the wording itself indicates evil. We find in verse 1 that Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. The word translated displeased comes from two Hebrew words, meaning to do evil, harm, be wicked, be angry or envious, denotes any activity which is contrary to God's will and indicates an attitude which rejects God's authority. Those who are characterized by such an attitude lack understanding and deliberately plan to hurt others, even habitually. I mean, Jonah wanted those Ninevites hurt. He didn't want them saved. God will discipline such people. The word translated angry in the Hebrew means to burn, to be kindled, to be angry, to be incensed, to grow indignant. It points to the fire and heat of anger just after it has been ignited. Boosh! Like a, like a bomb. That's what he's talking about. That's how mad Jonah was. Surely not a very good attitude to hold against the God of all creation. Seriously, Jonah? What are you thinking? 
seriously bad. What am I thinking when I grumble and complain and kick against the goats? What am I thinking? Certainly it appears that Jonah failed to recognize his privileges of being an instrument of God in a miraculous situation. He was just used, albeit his, his witnessing techniques was anything but wooing, um, to, to, to lead an entire country from, from being demised. He did not seem to care of his lost souls of Nineveh. That was, that was another thing that hit me. How much do I care about people, Lord? How much do I care about them? Indeed, he appears furious with God for staying his hand and saving them. Failing to embrace God's sovereign plan, he missed the joy and blessing of the situation and sank into a sinful and selfish state of mind. Because you know what? Sin doesn't stay right here. It just goes and goes and gets worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. If in chapter 1, Jonah is like the prodigal son, insisting on going his own way and doing his own thing, then in chapter 4, he's like the prodigal's elder brother. Critical, selfish, sullen, angry, and unhappy with what is taking place. We find the story in Luke 15, 11 through 32, Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided the property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything there, was a severe famine in the whole country and began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to the fields to feed his pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with, with the pies that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he became, came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, Bring the best robe and put it on it. Put a finger on his, put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead, and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the elder son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, "What's going on? Your brother has come," he replied, "and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has come back safe and sound." The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you. Motivation, motivation, motivation. And never disobeyed your orders. You never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead, and he's alive again. He was lost, and now he's found. 
It isn't enough for God's servant simply to do the master's will like the elder son. God desires for us to do the will from our hearts. Ephesians 6, 6 through 8 tells us, obey them. Not only to win their favor when their eyes on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly, again, our word, as if you were serving the Lord, not men. Because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. And then in Colossians, he says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters in the Lord, and do it not only when their eyes on you and to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. It is a, <clears throat> whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. It's not the man, the woman behind the deed. It's the Christ and what you're doing is serving Christ by serving them. Since you know you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. So the Lord Christ you're serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong, and there's no favoritism. When you look at somebody and you're doing something 500 times, the 500th time you're doing it, but you can see Christ's faith, and you're serving Christ when you're serving the person you're doing that for. When we serve others in Jesus' name, it is as serving Christ. To be sure, he's not looking for slavish duty. He's got thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly at his beck and call. He's not looking for a slave. (laughs) Rather, God delights in our doing his will out of love and trust for him. I believe it is in our choice that he delights. He sees how many choices we have. And he is glorified when we choose him. Uh, That movie, Family Man, you know, I choose you. I choose this. I choose this. And it's a choice of um, diligence. I mean, it's it's a choice of resolution, I guess is the best word. Like Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He knew what was up in front of him, but he was not gonna be swayed. Um, Joseph was resolute. I don't know how he did that. I mean, I'm in Genesis, and I mean, you know, all of the things that he went through, and it never sh- talks about him complaining. You know, he was just always just, and, and yet he had the foresight and the knowledge to realize, you meant it for bad to his brothers, but God meant it for good to accomplish the purposes he had for me to accomplish. He had the maturity and the foresight and the insight. That's what I want for y'all. That's what I really, really, really want for y'all and your children to know that it's not when you're in a situation or a circumstance that's miserable, not so much to look to flee. How can I get out of it as fast as I can? Look in it as what are you trying to teach me? What am I to learn here? How are you conforming into the image of, of you, Lord? Are you teaching me patience? You cannot learn patience unless you're in patience in situations where you have, your patience are tried, which is ob- obviously it's a hard lesson to learn because it seems like that's always there. Further, there's always blessing in our obedience. Remember that little package I had up there? There's always blessing in our obedience. It is, obedience is for us. 
it is for us. <clears throat> As we have discussed before, it's not against us. It's for us. Never forget that. We are the losers, and we are the ones that sorely miss out when we are prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for that courts above. Back to our story. Jonah had a problem with the heart. Remember, the heart of every problem is a problem of the heart. The heart of every problem is a problem of the heart. Get to the heart of the problem. You can, you can train a monkey to be obedient. I mean, you can. But you don't want to just train somebody. You want to change that heart. That, as mothers, is what you're after. Look at the leanings of their heart. Always look at the leanings of their heart, amen? And it's exactly where Jonah's problems were to be found. It was a hard issue. God's actions displeased him, and he was mad. He was angry, fit to be tied and burning with anger. <clears throat> would perhaps be a better description of him. Joy is certainly hard to come by when one's heart beats differently from God's. Say that again. Joy is hard to come by when your heart beats differently from God's. You want to want what he wants because his ways, even though sometimes are hard to understand, are higher and better than anything you can ever muster. When we are all about our own agendas rather than his, when we must learn, and unfortunately so often the hard way, that joy must not be dependent upon our circumstances. Rather, God intends for our joy to be experienced in his children despite our circumstances. A joy that permeates our whole spirit. Joy comes when we fall more and more in love with the one who loves us the most. You will never meet anybody on this earth that loves you more than Jesus. You won't. Not your children, not your husband, not your mommy, not your daddy, nobody. Which begs this question, do we know how very much we are loved by him? Do you know that? Show me. He loves to answer that prayer. Show me. Show me, Lord. Do we love him wholeheartedly and willingly? Do we believe he always has our best interest at heart? Elizabeth Elliot says, if you dwell on your own feelings about things rather than dwelling on the faithfulness, the love, and the mercy of God, then you're likely to have a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. Our feelings are very fleeting and ephemeral. ephemeral I can't ever say that word. And transient, aren't they? We can't depend on them for five minutes at a time. But dwelling on the love and faithfulness and mercy of God is always safe. I don't know if y'all... Y'all are probably y'all are so young, y'all don't know, but Campus Crusade for Christ used to have a thing about a train and <clears throat> have faith and all this stuff. And the, but the last thing was the caboose, was, uh, was the, your emotions, your feelings. And Bob was telling me that if you, uh, because I, I drive too fast, um, if, you're pulling, <laughs> if you're pulling something and you're, what you're pulling, like say you're pulling a boat and you're going down the freeway and that boat starts to swerve like this, then all of a sudden the boat just isn't going to turn over. It can turn over your whole, everything. Okay, well, that's just like the emotions of the caboose on the train and your faith. And your emotions get out of line, whoops, and they start swerving back and forth like this and bam, 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 bam. So, 
don't give your emo- emotions a lot of credence. It's like, you know, you get like, because, and, and women are the worst, you know, because we have all these hormones that are going off every time, you know, and it's like, you know, just try to get a grasp on that. Along with God's abiding joy always comes the tranquility of his peace that passes our understanding. And boy, that, and don't y'all just want that? Sometimes you just want peace. Like all the time. Just peace. You know? <laughs> anyway, but that's what's given to us, even though no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful later on it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace. Harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Always, we must learn to embrace each circumstance with joy. That's not easy. Always knowing that he has our best interests at heart. He is using these hard things to refine us. The refining process even sounds hard. Like a goldsmith, you know, with the, he turns up the heat, he gets the gold boiling, and then he skims off the, the dross that comes up to the top, and then he does it again. If he looks at it, he doesn't see his face, you know, he does it again and does it again until he can see his image. And that's what he's doing with us. Uh, <clears throat> he, is, he is using the hard to refine us. With all that he allows in our lives, he is transforming us into the image of his son, burning off the dross so that the gold will shine forth. Is this hard? Yes, would be the answer. I'm not saying that this is some walk on easy street. Often extraordinarily hard. I mean, I can't tell you how many things. I mean, it's ridiculous. It is ridiculous. I mean, I just go, okay, Lord, I got to get over this. I got to get over myself. It's the best thing is to do is like empty me of me, Lord, just empty me of me. All these little biases and things. Like one of the things I, I mean, I'm like a perfectionist on steroids, right? And so, I'm, and I don't have a garage right now. So, uh, yeah, well, and so I, and I, and I always, I like a clean car. <laughs> so, I, you know, I'm always taking my car and getting a wash. And as soon, this is hilarious, sort of. But as soon, every, it has happened every single time. My car is white. And so I park it in the front. I'm not kidding you. I'll go in, take something, come back out, and that bird has, <laughs> and it's not a little bird. It's, <laughs> I, I, I just as, so y'all can have a, a picture of it, when you leave, you'll see my car, and I left it just like that. It's all down the whole side of my car. <laughs> Every single time I've gotten it washed. <laughs> okay, I'm just going to leave it there. I love poop on my car. <laughs> oh, my goodness. But anyway, um, it's hard. You know, it's like dying to self. Dying to self is not easy. You know, like, but you know what? It's said in every single gospel. Now, what about that? If anybody would come after me, he must take up his cross and follow me and deny himself. Every one of them. Hmm. But it's always purposeful, and it's always for our best interest, whether we're readily disordered or not. And it clearly will result in glory for every era of mercy, as well as abundant peace and righteousness. I want that in my house. I want, I want peace and righteousness to permeate me. Um, the Seminary of Suffering, isn't that a great title? This Piper says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Like I told you, it is not about... Us mustering up the power to do this. It's not about willpower. It's not about, oh, I can do this. It's not, you know, it's, it's allowing God to live through you. 
It's the denying of self, emptying me and allowing him to do through you and to do things that are far above your ability. This is God's universal purpose for all Christians, suffering. More contentment in God and less reliance on self in the world. I have never heard anyone say that really, really deep lessons of life have come through times of ease and comfort. But I've heard strong saints say every significant advance I've ever made in grasping the depths of God's love and growing deep with him has come through suffering. The pearl of greatest price is the glory of Christ. Thus Paul stresses that in our sufferings the glory of Christ, all sufficient grace is magnified. If we rely on him in our calamity and he sustains our rejoicing and hope, then he is shown to be the all-satisfying God of grace and strength that he is. Do people look at you as you claim faith, and they say, oh, yes, she is, God is all-satisfying to her or to him. If we hold fast to him, when all around our soul gives way, then we show that he is more to be desired than what we have lost. Christ said to the suffering apostle, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Praise him. Paul responded to this, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest on me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, when I don't think I can do this, then I am strong. So suffering clearly is designed by God, not only as a way to wean Christians off of self, and onto grace, but also as a way to spotlight that grace and make it shine. That is precisely what faith does. It magnifies Christ's future grace. The deep things of life in God are discovered and magnified in suffering. I mean, indeed. Um, Hebrews 11 through 12, excuse me, Hebrews 12, 11 through 13, I just quoted it, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, it, har- it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. But then it says, therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees, make level paths for your feet, so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. The writer of Hebrews sensed the tendency to spiritual weakness in his readers. And in the light of the, these truths he had expounded, he encouraged them to renew their strength. If they would do this and would pursue the level paths, which real righteousness entails, like in scripture it'll say, he asked where the good way is, and in Jeremiah it said, but they wouldn't walk in it. I showed it to him, but they wouldn't walk in it. It is a, it is a life of obedience to this. The weakest, um, the level paths, which is real righteousness entails, the weakest among them, which are called the lame, he refers to, would not be further disabled, but rather healed. Their own strength would benefit weaker Christians. Teach me, again, Elizabeth Elliot says, to treat all that comes to me throughout the day with peace of soul and with firm conviction that your will governs all. Everything that happens, your will is governing all. Nothing that comes to me is devoid of divine purpose. Nothing. Nothing is chance or happenstance in this world. In seeking to see the whole with God's eyes, we can find the peace which human events so often destroy. I rest, dear Lord, in the knowledge that you are the blessed comforter of all things. Comforter and controller. God is God. 
because he is God, he is worthy of my trust and obedience. See, that's where that's where our protagonist missed. It's like he's gonna he's gonna lecture God for saving the Ninevites. He's gonna lecture him in an angry tone and mad. I will find rest nowhere but in his holy will, a will that is unspeakably beyond my largest notions of what he is up to. My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. It's higher than heavens. It's my thoughts and your thoughts and my ways your ways. You're not going to put him in a box. But God, and, um, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in trespasses. We are saved by grace in Ephesians 2, 4 through 5. When life is running smoothly, it's easy to be grateful and praise God. But when things go south, as they inevitably do, I often find myself grumbling, why God? Instead of praying, I trust you, Lord. I mean, most of the time the people, you know, like, why is this happening to me? And somebody said, well, why not? You know, but God, two simple words, but God. Thank you, Lord. You're all over in scripture. Yet powerful words we find in Ephesians. Paul's words are a sweet reminder that God is a God of gracious detours. He doesn't want, well, first of all, we don't stay like this. You know, we're either going down or we're going up. But he's, he's constantly moving us forward, moving us, moving us forward. And, and once you get something down, then he's going to go to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing until you're home with him. Like Enoch, you know, it's like he's going to purge off all the dross. He's going to purge off all the unnecessary of you, of me. Um, Paul's words are a sweet reminder that God is a God of gracious detours. His grace steers us back to the path that leads to light and life. If anyone understood this grace, it was Paul. Paul was a man who spent years persecuting those who believed in God, a man who, some say, didn't deserve the kind of scandalous grace that God offers. But God, what a generous reminder that it is because of Christ we have freedom. The best of my best is but dirty rags to our holy God. Amen to that. And yet, despite all my failings, God loves me. Most days, I can't wrap my head around this kind of love. Even when I was so deep in my sin, he wanted life for me. Personalize all this, guys. But God, God knew the witness Paul would become. Paul's conversion story is a powerful reminder that even when we fail or run away from God, he can and will use us for his purposes. In the book of Ephesians, we find Paul in prison, enduring what must have been incredibly difficult trials. Yet Paul's response was to write a letter that would encourage other believers. Paul obviously understood in a deep way the immense grace that only God could give, and he wanted us to understand it as well. It's like it's, you can feel his passion in Philippians where he says, I, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so some how to attain to the resurrection of the dead. Not that I've already attained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, one thing I do, so this is something we can all remember today, forget what's behind. Can't do anything about it anyway. And straying toward what is ahead, 
I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which Christ has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. But only let us live up to what we've already attained. God's gift of grace is undeserved but always a bomb to our overstriving, weary hearts. We don't have to be perfect. <laughs> I need that. No perfection. <laughs> it's like, ah! It's like, what, Lord, why am I wired this way? I mean, I spend my life just trying not to be wired this way. It's like, okay, the only thing he has allowed me to be perfect over is this. And I can do it as much as I want. I can, ta- I can take as much of that in as I want. I can memorize as much of that as I want. Other than that, I'm going to be washing my car every day. (laughs) Perfection is not going to be attained here because we live in a broken, fallen world, and we are broken and fallen too. Um, Let's see. Uh, Okay. Also, by the way, our Jesus has already clearly warned us not to be surprised with troubles and persecutions. I mean, that's like, that's a given. They're coming. So, you know, and disappointments can hit you. And boom, 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 boom. I don't know. The, uh, not the older ones of us, you know, I mean, it's like, uh, it's not just one thing. It's like, bam. And then you go, it's like Job. It's like, okay. And then bam, bam. And then, okay, when, when is these bam, bams are going <laughs> to stop? Please, Lord, help me, help me. I've told you these things so that you may have peace. In this world, you will have that philebus. You will have that bam, and you will have that trouble, that wine press beaten down on your heart. But take heart. I've overcome this world. But the question is, to precede all others, which finally determines the course of our lives, what do I really want? What do I really, really want? Was it to love what God commands in the words of the collect and to desire what he promises? Did I want what I wanted, or did I want what he wanted, no matter what the cost? All the while, God was seeking to speak life into the prophet Jonah's head, dead places. I love God's response. It's just so not, not you know, like I'd be, what do you mean? You don't know anything. <laughs> what is that? You know, whatever. Um, all the while, he's speaking to speak life, seeking to speak life into Jonah's dead places, arousing him from his sin and breathing new life into his sin-sick soul. Jonah's divided heart kept him from enjoying the fruits of his labor. It robbed him of joy. He would have been wise to pray like King David prayed for his son Solomon. And you, my son Solomon, acknowledge the God of your father. similar. This is what I just read to you, uh, but it's more... Um, and serving with all our devotion and willing mind, for the Lord searches every heart and understands every motive behind the thoughts. If you seek him, he will be found by you, but if you forsake him, he will reject you. Consider now, this is the last verse, for the Lord has chosen you to build a temple as a sanctuary. Be strong and do the work. He has chosen you to build your temple. He has chosen you to build your temple. He's chosen you to build your temple. Be strong and do the work. Be strong and do the work. Interestingly, this is a call for us all. We are all to serve the Lord wholeheartedly and with a willing mind for our own good. For our own good. Each building our own temples is a sanctuary. Pray this over yourselves. Pray this over your families. It's a prayer that God delights to answer. Interestingly, um, 
the very this is excuse me the very remarkable thing here is that God tenderly dealt with his sulking servant, I, I, as a father did to his older son in the story of the prodigal, and sought to bring him back in to the place of joy and fellowship. See, the prodigal's older son left the joy and the fellowship, but he wouldn't go back in. And that's what Jonah's doing the same thing. He, wouldn't, he wasn't rejoicing over this good thing that all these people had turned to, to the Lord. How deep is the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure. Sadly, Jonah had blatantly rejected and repudiated the goodness of God towards the Ninevites. In the attitude, he symbolized the nation of Israel. He was their model, I guess you could say, of their, of their feelings as well. They did not like the Assyrians. And, and, and really, they could say with reason, reason, they had reason because they were so violent and cruel to them. Jonah's self-interest were a reminder to Israel of her lack of concern for the ways and mercies of God. You know, sometimes we get so um, comfortable in our spiritual environment and we're always around Christians and we're in good churches and we you know and we and, and, and we think oh you know somebody will reach them or whatever like that and uh, and God's given Jonah this opportunity to show God's mercy and Jonah just says I'm not doing that I don't want to because he he valued himself higher than them the word but at the beginning of verse 1 points us to the contrast between God's compassion and Jonah's displeasure and between God's turning from his anger and Jonah's turning to anger. Jonah's anger at God for sparing Nineveh more than likely stemmed from his unbalanced patriotic fervor. The Jews had um, kind of a you know, mentality they were better than everybody else. Our protagonist probably knew from Amos and Hosea that Assyria would be Israel's destroyer. Jonah's fickle attitude toward God's dealings with him are both remarkably abrupt and variegated. <laughs> In chapter 1, he's disobedient. In chapter 2, he's thankful. In chapter 3, it'll be... Uh, in chapter 3, it's... Ob- Wait a minute, I did that wrong. Uh, d- disobedience in chapter 1, thanksgiving in chapter 2, obedience in chapter 3, and displeasure in chapter 4. So he goes up and down, up and down. We discover in verse 2 for the second time in our story, Jonah prayed, but his second prayer was much different in content and intent than his first. Interestingly, he prayed the best prayer in the worst place, in the belly of the well, or fish. And he prayed the worst prayer in the best place after God had just saved all these people. Um, where God was miraculously working. His first prayer came from a broken heart, but his second prayer came from an angry heart. In his first prayer, he asked God to save him, but in the second prayer, he rebukes God and asks him to take his life. Once again, amazingly, Jonah would rather die than not to have his own way. I realize that the deepest spiritual lessons are not learned by, my, by his letting us have our way in the end, but by his making us wait, bearing us with, in love and patience until we are able honestly to pray what he taught his disciples to pray. That will be done. Do I really want his will?
to will what God wills brings peace. Here lies the tremendous mystery that God should be all-powerful, yet he refuses to coerce. He summons us to cooperation. We are honored in being given the opportunity to participate in his deeds. This petulant prayer lets us in on the secret of why Jonah tried to run away in the first place. Being a good theologian, Jonah knew the attributes of God, that he was a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Confident of this, Jonah was certain that if he announced judgment to the Ninevites and they repented, God would forgive them. He knew God's heart and not send this judgment. And he did not want them to be saved from this impending doom. That's why, hence, his, his uh, 